This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest, Timothy McMahon King, entered the hospital 10 years ago with a life-threatening condition. He emerged with an addiction to opioids. He chronicles what he learned in his journey of recovery and what it told him about our communities today in his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King. He's a writer, a nonprofit professional, and the owner of Vagabond Consulting. He's worked as a community organizer in Chicago, a chief strategy officer with Sojourners, and he currently serves as a consultant for the Center for Action and Contemplation. Today, we'll be discussing his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Timothy McMahon King, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. So your book says it right up there in the title, Addiction Nation. This is going to be a book that is timely, and it's going to be talking about something that I would imagine most of my listeners have at least indirect contact with. They either have a family member, or they know someone, or maybe they themselves have had a struggle with addiction. But let's start with you and with why you came to write this book. How does addiction touch your life, Timothy McMahon King? Addiction, for me, I had thought I knew a lot about it. It was something that, like a lot of people, there was a history of alcoholism in my family. I had known different people who had struggled at various points in their life, and I did not realize how much I didn't know about addiction until it happened to me. And my story was about 10 years ago, I went into the hospital for what should have been a routine procedure, and it went wrong. The doctors gave me a 50-50 chance of whether I would live or die. My organs were shutting down. I was going into acute respiratory distress. I was in the ICU. And all that time, I was on increasing levels of narcotics, which at the time, perfectly medically appropriate, exactly what I needed. It was important in keeping me alive because the stress of the pain from the condition could have hurt me even more. But it wasn't until months later when I was out of the hospital that my doctor sat me down and he had noticed that my prescriptions were running out faster and faster when I should have been getting better. And he let me know that I was addicted to my pain medicine. And what was amazing in that moment and what started to reshape my understanding of addiction was that I thought when he said that it was going to be the primary thrust would be a moral condemnation, that he was going to let me know that I was doing something wrong, that I was a liar, that that I was trying to trick him. And instead, he let me know that he was going to be a partner with me in my own recovery. And he understood that I was still in pain and that he understood that this was not something that I had flagrantly decided to pursue pleasure at the cost of all moral goods, 
But this was something that I was seeking some sort of good in my life, that when he addressed that, that was when I could start to recover. And you say in your book, Addiction Nation, that one of the things that this particular physician did for you was he helped you to begin to imagine a world beyond addiction. He gave you a narrative of hope. But let's take two steps back, because he wasn't the first physician to have confronted this issue with you, was he? No, so three separate times while I was in the hospital, I had doctors accuse me of simply seeking pain medicine, that I was faking my symptoms in order to get more drugs. And each time they actually missed a complication that ended up being life-threatening. And so that's why my stay in the hospital was so long was because the doctors kept dismissing what I was saying in just thinking that this was about trying to get high. And one of the things that completely shifted my understanding of addiction is, yes, I was in the hospital, but the more I started to read anyone's stories, no matter how their addiction started, you realize that addiction is always rooted in some kind of pain, whether that pain is psychological or emotional. Pain is always there at the heart of it because people are trying to address that thing in their lives. And the reality is, is that some of these substances that we get addicted to or some of these behaviors provide a very good temporary solution. But the problem is, is that temporary solution comes with a downside. And that means that the pain and the disconnection that it can cause in the long run is going to be worse than anything that it can provide in the short term. So these previous physicians, they had looked at you and they had seen you as not a human being who was going through a process of trying to become whole and to heal. They instead saw you as one acute symptom, or they saw you as a, a, a junkie, basically, who was looking for a fix and was trying to create any excuse to get prescribed medication. They weren't, they weren't looking at the whole person. And this physician who you mentioned who actually helped to begin to facilitate a process of you confronting this addiction, it sounds as if that physician was actually able to present to you a reflection of yourself where you could see yourself whole again. Now, first of all, have I read that correctly and have I understood that correctly in your own story or would you say it differently? I think that's a great summary. It was the difference between seeing somebody who, you know, the, the primary model, whether I would have admitted it or not at the time, that I had in my own head was that if someone got addicted to a substance, it was because they were seeking bad things or they were morally weak. And my doctor was able to flip that on its head and see that I was seeking good things. I was seeking to be well. I was seeking to be free from pain. I was seeking to get my life back. But at that point, the addiction had sunk into in such a depth that I wasn't able to see on my own that that pain medicine was now doing more harm than good. Well, and help me understand, when you were using these pain medications at their height, when you were in the depths of addiction, were you getting high or were you simply numbing pain? Or is that a line that doesn't actually exist? Are they the same thing? You know, it's one that gets blurred because at its basics, we often think of addiction as liking something too much. And in reality, it's about wanting something. And that wanting coming from a place in our brain that is no longer fully conscious. So there was a time where the pain medicine was making me feel better and that there was that sense of euphoria that you would get. But when it crossed the line into addiction, was when it wasn't just about wanting, it wasn't just about liking it. 
but my brain telling me that I needed it. And that is a line that can sometimes take years for someone to cross or sometimes only takes a few months. But once we get into that place, you see people in the depths of addiction, they no longer like what they do. They do not want to do, and to quote Paul, they are doing the things they don't want to do, and they're not doing the things that they want to do. And when we recognize that addiction is often much more along the lines of a spectrum of something that you can be deeper in or less engaged in, and it's also something that we all, in our own ways, can have addiction struggles. It just is a matter of what? It's drugs and alcohol that are often the foremost, but not necessarily the only kinds of addictions we can have. And so in seeing that kind of spectrum and seeing that way that we can all struggle with these sorts of things, we start to see that addiction is not this aberrant behavior that is just manifested in a few, but is a part of the human condition. And it's part of the human condition that we all need to address. Well, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you're, you have some family history with alcoholism in your wider family. My mother also was an alcoholic. She passed away in 2009, but she spent her entire life in, in connection with that disease. My children were born after her death, and so as I've tried to explain my relationship to my mother to my children, who are now nine and eight, I've tried to introduce some part of the conversation around addiction, and my children have tried to understand what addiction is like, and I've said to them, well, it's kind of like when you feel hungry and you want to eat, and the eating satisfies the hunger, and that's a natural kind of cycle, but sometimes our brains and our bodies get connected to unnatural kinds of cycles where we become hungry for things that aren't nourishing for us, and and we, we feed ourselves with those things instead, and sometimes that can be very damaging. Now, when I say this kind of thing to my children, I'm certainly simplifying a lot of factors, but when I, when I say that to you, do you hear a resonance in that with your own experience of addiction, or would you describe it, the mechanism in a different way? I think that's a great analogy to start with, because addiction, there is not an addiction center in the brain. It is a disorder of the very parts of our minds that help us learn. And so within addiction, we are pursuing something because we've had that dopamine spike in the past in our brains that that chemical is telling us, this is good, do that again, you want more of it. Now, that is something great when we need to remind ourselves like to eat when we see flowers. And that reminds us, Oh, there, you know, ancient humans would go back and be like, are there, there's going to be berries there later because we see that those sorts of dopamine hits are incredibly important to our functioning in the world today, but then it does get out of control. And when you have something like an opioid that has a huge spike And it's not associated with learning, except for that behavior that you're using to get the drug. So you aren't learning something new about your environment. You aren't learning some new skill. You aren't learning some new practice. All you're learning is to take more of that substance. And so as we take more of it, our brain and how it's supposed to function is supposed to send stronger signals to keep doing that thing. And that's where addiction moves out of a place of how we normally think about choice into something new and deeper that is subverting our normal choice processes that we would have functioning in other areas of our lives. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Well, in the first part of our conversation, we were talking about your own experience with addiction and how you came to sort of inhabit the narrative that you're trying to unpack in your book, Addiction Nation. And you mentioned that oftentimes we mischaracterize addiction as wanting something too much, But then you said, we often misunderstand that all addiction is rooted in some way in in uh, an attempt to deal with pain. And that's really where I want to dig in now. When we use this word pain, I think most of my listeners will think that we all know what we're talking about. But it's much more troubling to realize that when we start to talk about pain in an analytical way, to try and really unpack what pain means— it's a very complex subject. And so let me ask you just simply at the beginning of this segment, what is pain? Well, that's a deep question. And pain, in some ways, it's best to talk about it in almost how we experience it. And pain can be, I think, experienced in a lot of different ways. We can see it as the helpful sort of warning signal that lets us know that something isn't quite right. And that can help us pull our hands back from a hot fire, and that can help us respond to quickly changing circumstances to know that there's danger and we can act in some sort of self-protection. But pain can also be something that destroys our worlds and our words. And that is what I think we see in a kind of deep psychic pain, whether or not that is comes out of a place of physical pain, so someone experiencing a back problem because they were working in a factory, or if that is a kind of social and emotional pain in which they have experienced betrayal or disconnection from others. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is my own experience of pain as it being something that erased my world and reduced the, the kinds of choices and the hope that I experienced within it. And so in the midst of experiencing that kind of pain, to have a substance come in, and opioids have been with us, the opium poppy, they think was first cultivated about 6,000 BC, and some historians argue about whether or not the cultivation of the poppy is older than than, uh, brewing beer. And it's been something that humans have used and engaged with for a long time because we've always been trying to address that pain in all of our lives. And it is not surprising that at a time where there's not just physical pain, but a kind of emotional and social pain where people are feeling more disconnected than ever before, that society is once again 
turning to this age-old substance that provides some sort of relief. Because I think in the midst of that relief, people get glimpses of the meaning that really drives our lives. And then once again, the danger is that's not an answer. It's a part. It could be a part of it for some people in an important way that they're treating it. And one of the things I often say about addiction is addiction isn't dangerous because it always lies. It's dangerous because it only tells a part of that truth. And a part of that truth can be treating some real pain that people are experiencing. And as you just said, pain, we oftentimes think of pain as physical pain. Ow, I cut my finger or I I barked my shin against a, a bed or a cabinet. But there's also trauma. There's psychological pain. There's the pain of loss. There's grief. All of these things have manifestations in our bodies. We, we feel pain even when there's not a physical connection to it. But what intrigued me about your book, Addiction Nation, is that pain is not only physical, it's not only psychological, but there's also, we could talk about spiritual pain, and we could also talk about habitual pain, where pain almost becomes something that we are habitually expecting. Like when you mentioned the person with the chronic back pain and the closure of the world, it's almost as if sometimes pain makes us forget that there's a possibility of pain not existing, isn't there? Absolutely. And when I was in the height of my own illness, I looked to the narcotics I was receiving as something that gave me back a connection to the world around me. And there's chronic pain patients still today who that has been their experience. They have been in such pain that they the only times when they feel connected to the world is through that substance. And the other tricky thing, especially with opioids, is the kind of chemical they are. So drugs are powerful in our brains, not because they're so foreign to our brains, but because they resemble some sort of chemical that naturally occurs or some sort of process that's already going on. And for opioids in particular, they mimic endorphins. And in fact, the word endorphin comes from the two words endogenous and morphine. Endogenous meaning occurring within. And so endorphins, that's that chemical that bonds us to each other. It's the chemical that gives us that experience of, of love and transcendence. And so when someone takes an opioid, one of the reasons why it's so powerful is it is mimicking one of our most basic instincts, and that's attachment. That's love. And in the midst of feeling pain, whether that's physical or social isolation or spiritual pain, that chemical that mimics attachment and love is going to be one of the most powerful things you can experience. And that's why it can be so good and when it's being used well and so dangerous when it goes beyond that and into addiction. So if I'm hearing you correctly, like if we look at a a very, a very physical act like childbirth, what I understand is that immediately after childbirth, both the child and the mother are flooded with these kind of endorphins, these these chemicals that you're talking about, but they're occurring naturally in the body. The body is producing them both to help to sort of numb the, the pain of childbirth and the trauma of childbirth, but also they create deep emotional bonds. And if I'm hearing you correctly, these chemicals like morphine, you mentioned, they come into the body and they, do they just connect to the same receptors in the brain where those, those natural hormones and, and, and painkillers would connect to, or are they, are they in some way enhancing that, that connection? What is the way in which they, they come in and they mimic what our bodies are naturally doing? Yeah, you explained it exactly right. The chemicals are going into those receptors that would normally take in endorphins. And instead, they're taking in that opioid. 
And one of the things that happens is you explain the difference like with the mother and the child. So those endorphins are so good because that is creating that bond between the mother and the child. And what it's doing is reinforcing those pro-social, those pro-care behaviors. The mother is creating those kinds of habits and virtues that help her be a caring person. And she's getting that chemical boost because when she does it, her brain is saying, screaming, yes, this is good. Do it again. Attach more, care more, hold this child more. And even when they're screaming and crying, continue to hold them and continue to love them and then experience those endorphins again when that comes through. Now, the danger with addiction is all it's teaching you to do is that one behavior of taking that thing again. And this is how powerful it is. Uh, when I first you know, started getting narcotics in the hospital, it was through an IV. And I still remember that moment of relief of having it pushed through the intravenous line and into my arm and you feel the cold and you feel it. Well, months later, I was on a kind of semi-permanent pick line. I couldn't eat. And so every day I would have to hook up to a pump and get all of these nutrients. And that feeling was so powerful that once a day I had to flush those lines with salt water. And because it mimicked that addiction, an initial experience, I could push salt water into my veins, knowing fully that it was had no psychoactive chemicals in it, and I would feel a sense of euphoria because my mind had so closely attached it to that experience. Now, the difference, one of the interesting areas of study is how much addiction looks like the early stages of romantic love. And so you become obsessive about that other person. You're thinking about them all the time. You lose time when you're with them. You forget that hours are passing. And the same thing happens with drugs. But as they do brain scans over time of people who are addicted to a drug like cocaine versus those who fall into romantic love, a lot of those same patterns are all initiated in our brain. But the difference is for the person in love, it continues to strengthen pro-social behaviors. It continues to strengthen those positive virtues of connection and sacrifice to others and help wanting to help people. In an addiction, it falls in on itself. And it just keeps getting more tightly wired around wanting to repeat that process that gets you that chemical over and over again. Now, when you're saying this, what jumps out to me so clearly You've mentioned how we have this natural connection in childbirth to a bonding that occurs chemically. And then you mentioned how you felt a bonding experience to the cool flush of a liquid into your veins and that that became a bonded experience. The thing that jumps out to me is the idea of idolatry. We are created for a certain relationship with our creator but we so often will substitute some kind of material object in the place of that. And that's, in Christian terms, that's, that's the classical definition of idolatry, mistaking a creation for something that we are created for. And it sounds like there's a similar mechanism happening here where a very natural, you use the word pro-social connection, is being replaced, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but almost perverted into an unnatural connection or a connection with some sort of material object like a needle or the feeling of a, of a flush of a liquid in, into your vein. Am I hearing this correctly, or is that, a, is that not a good connection to make? Yeah, I think that's a, a great line to go down, because, you know, going all the way back to Augustine, we started, Christians started developing this theology that what we, when we say evil, when we say something's bad, what we're really talking about is not that that thing is always bad, right? Not that the fruit in the Garden of Eden was an evil thing, but that 
our desires for it became disordered. Its relationship in our life, it became disordered. And until we understand that that underlying drive for connection, for love, for treating pain, all of those things that can push us into a healthy understanding of God, a healthy understanding of religion, a healthy relationship to religion, is at the heart of what we're driving at in addiction, we're going to fail in treating it. Because if we just want to punish people for a behavior that is already, by its definition, self-harming, all we're going to do is push people down further into a a spiral of shame, further into a spiral that they feel they're a bad person and they can't recover. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. So Harper Lee wrote a book called To Kill a Mockingbird, and I know that oftentimes when we read that book, we remember some of the adventures that the two young children in that book, Scout Finch and Jem Finch, have, and we remember Boo Radley as as the sort of ghoul that inhabits the book. But there's one aspect of that book that really jumped out to me as I was reading your book, Addiction Nation, and that is it's a little side story in To Kill a Mockingbird about a character called Mrs. DeBose, and she's presented, first of all, as kind of a, a wretch that keeps getting on to the older boy, Jem, and just really getting up in his business and hassling him. But over time, Jem and Scout as characters come to understand that Mrs. DeBose is actually addicted to morphine. And she she is trying to extricate herself from that morphine. And their father, Atticus, actually makes them go and read to her for lengths of time as she's trying to do something to occupy herself other than getting this next dose of of this drug. And I'm struck by the fact that at the end of this particular sub-story within To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus, the father, says to Scout and Jem, she died free. She got away from the addiction. There's so much there that we should be talking about because in small, sleepy southern towns— Women were getting addicted like this all the time in the early 20th century, weren't they? And help us to understand the dynamics, both social and economic, that helped to lead to that. And how does that help us understand this wider problem of addiction? One of the fascinating things about looking historically is today you hear the word heroin and people just automatically, like, it's terrible, it's, it's horrible. And it really is just another form of opioids that up until roughly the mid-1910s, were not just legal, but incredibly common at your local pharmacy. And in the development of those drugs, you saw people taking opium. When people started getting addicted to opium, some enterprising scientists came in and said that morphine was going to be the solution to what at the time was most popularly called a bad opium habit. And then later on, heroin was first introduced as a 
solution for morphine addiction. And the role that it played in society was incredibly different than what we see today. And even wrote about another famous person, William Wilberforce, was heavily addicted to opioids throughout his over 30 plus years. And in his circumstance, it was until the day he died. And some people theorize it might have actually contributed to his death because he died of respiratory issues. And part of the role opioids play is to depress the respiratory system. So they're incredibly popular. And at the time, women were being prescribed them all of the time for what would be considered what they called at the time women's complaints or women's hysteria. And so you see within that culture that especially middle-class women, uh, women who were coming up and had some sort of wealth, they were being denied a role, a broader role in society. They were being denied a broader purpose, but at the same time, it was seen as being beneath them to engage in some of the household tasks that lower-income women were doing on a day-to-day basis. And so you do end up with these characters. And one of the journals I read was a doctor was particularly worried about women with flaxen hair and delicate complexion as being particularly susceptible to an opium addiction. And as they like, as you read through some of these journals, you have time and time again women saying, you don't know what this drug means in my life. It gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of connection. And it gives me a sense of meaning. And so while that was the case back in the, you know, the turn of the last century, early 1900s, what does that look like today? And drugs always play a role in people's lives as they also reflect something about what's happening in society. And so we, one of the quotes that I go back and forth, one of the most comprehensive histories of opium usage in America, just continues to say, what we think about addiction is often reflective of what we think about the person who's addicted. So 1980s, you have the rise of the crack epidemic. And it was happening in a lot of poor black urban areas where people were systematically denied and lacking opportunity, lacking work, lacking a cohesive purpose. And so a drug comes along and it provides a sense of power. It provides a sense of temporary control. But instead of asking the question of what's happening in society that so many people might be turning to this drug, we blamed the people themselves. We blamed black men. We blamed the black family. We talked about crack babies. We talked about super predators. We talked about welfare queens. And we threw people out and we put them into our system of mass incarceration. We locked them up and we denied that there was something wrong with our society. We said it was wrong with those individuals. And we ended up with mass incarceration. We hit 1996 at the time when a lot of people said this was the the crack epidemic was over. We had completely solidified mass incarceration as a bipartisan approach to drugs and drug addiction. 1996, the USDA approves what they called a minimally addictive opioid painkiller, Oxycontin. And that is prescribed not in middle inner city areas. It's not prescribed primarily to black and brown people. It is prescribed to mostly white patients. And that's happening in the suburbs. That's happening in rural areas. And by the year 2000, overdose deaths from prescription opioids were higher than overdose deaths from crack had ever been. But it wasn't making national news because people were covering it up. They weren't talking about it. 
And I believe that there was this societal understanding, the societal belief that a lot of white folks were looking at themselves and their family and saying, we're not supposed to get addicted. That's other people. We aren't supposed to get addicted because we're good, upstanding, middle-class citizens or we're good, rural citizens, when in reality we were lying to ourselves. And that silence allowed this epidemic to spread over the course of years. By the time we started cracking down on prescription drugs, we didn't, we didn't deal with demand. We only dealt with supply. So those, a lot of those people turned to illicit heroin. And after illicit heroin, turning to fentanyl. And that's part of why we've seen these overdoses continue to increase and this, this get worse because we failed to realize from the get-go that drugs often play a role in society and they reflect more not on the choices of individuals, but on the failures that we have perpetuated. Well, in your book, Addiction Nation, one of the things that you highlight is that we create these narratives and you've begun to sort of dig into that. But we have narratives of kind of defective personalities. And then on the other side, we have narratives of kind of innocent addicts. And so you mentioned the crack ep- epidemic and the collapse of the African-American family, and that would be an example of a defective personality narrative. And then when people began to die in white suburban communities, it was never named that they were addicts. Instead, there were euphemisms that were used in their obituaries, and they were covering up the the truth, the honest truth of what was going on. And, and that that plays into this notion that they were somehow innocent addicts or that they they got there not because that they they were bad people. And your phrase, this doesn't happen to us. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation how addiction always tells you kind of half-truths. It doesn't lie to you, but it gives you half-truths. So we're really looking at a rampant case of not living in full truth, aren't we? Yes. And one of the truths that I don't think we want to to deal with. And so one of the other theories of addiction that I look at is what's called the dislocation theory of addiction. There's a researcher, Bruce Alexander, who started looking at this with returning service members from Vietnam. Huge amount of men, estimates up to 20 to 25% had full-blown heroin addictions while serving over in Vietnam. But when they came back, the United States government was prepared for an epidemic of overdoses, of addiction, and to some people did maintain their addictions, but traumatically, it was about 95% of people who had been addicted to heroin over in Vietnam were able to, without significant intervention for the most part, kick their addictions once back in the United States. So this researcher, Bruce Alexander, asked, why is that? And a typical experiment at the time to study the addictive nature of substances was you would put a rat in a small cage with two water bottles and they, one would just be water, and one would be water laced with morphine or with cocaine. And time and time again, they would watch that rat in a cage continue to press that lever to get more morphine or get cocaine until it died of starvation or until it overdosed. Alexander wanted to ask, what if part of the problem isn't just the substance, but the environment that the rat is in? So he created what he called Rat Park which is a large cage where rats could play with each other. They had mates, they had friends, they had wood shavings that mimicked their natural environment, and they had access to a water bottle laced with cocaine or morphine. And while some of those rats did use it and some of those rats did develop what looked like an addiction, for the most part, you never saw what happened in those small isolated cages. And I think one of the things that we are afraid to address in our society today is that maybe some of our suburban worlds 
maybe some of our McMansions, maybe some of the things that we've created that we think are success, that we call the American dream, are actually a lot more like those isolated rat cages than any of us would want to admit. What we're hungry for is connection. What we're hungry for is social belonging and meaning. And when we don't get that, when we're caged in some way, we end up looking for an alternate, and that alternate oftentimes ends up being an addictive substance. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. And that's where Karl Marx's riff off of that is today, opium is the opium of the masses. And one of the dive into the myth of Sisyphus and that feeling that I think a lot of people have that there is, even if they are working, even if they are engaged in what the economy considers productive labor, that it has lost meaning, that it has lost purpose. And so as we're thinking about addiction, we know that there are aspects that are inherited biologically, but also that line between an inherited biological trait and something that we're receiving from our background and from our family history and from society is blurred more than ever before. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy McMahon King about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Well, we began our conversation about your book, Addiction Nation, talking about your own journey with opioid addiction. And in the hospital, you fell into a, a situation where your life was hanging in the balance And very appropriately, you were given some heavy pain medications. By the time you had recovered physically from the circumstances that had brought you to the hospital, you then had a a physical dependence upon these substances. Help us to understand the steps that you had to undertake once that empathetic doctor gave you a vision of how you could live life beyond addiction. What happened next? And one thing I want to be sure to clarify, there is a step after dependence into addiction. So dependence on a technical term is referring to the physical need that our body has that whenever we use any kind of substance, just like caffeine or anything like that, it it ends up creating these withdrawal symptoms and we have these reactive behaviors towards that substance. And so some people can go into the hospital and they might become dependent and they might feel withdrawal symptoms, but that hasn't actually crossed into addiction. Addiction is when that behavior starts to become compulsive and it goes beyond just a physical symptom into that kind of that driving force in your life. And it also is when it starts causing more harm than good. And that was what happened in my life. I was actually at the place where 
I had been on such heavy doses of narcotic. I was on a transdermal patch of fentanyl, which is something a lot of people hear about now, as well as taking multiple pills per day of high-strength Dilaudid. And it moved for me from, I think, dependence to addiction because I had such strong associations with safety. Whenever I felt a discomfort, whenever I felt that pain, I could get a sense of safety even when I wasn't safe, and I could get a sense of connection even as I was growing increasingly isolated. And so that first step for me with that doctor was that he didn't try to control my behavior. He didn't try to stop me to get used so much as he did trying to provide for me that vision of what life looks like after opioids. I believe overcoming addiction is always more about the yes than what we say no to. And being a partner for someone in recovery isn't so much about controlling a negative behavior as it is calling out and helping to cultivate those good behaviors. So the first step for me was he connected me with some alternative pain therapy. He made sure that I was not cut off from my pain medicine immediately and that I didn't feel nervous or concerned about that and helped me connect me with different methodologies that are evidence-based, including motivational interviewing, which is a great thing. And especially if anyone's in a pastoral role or in a ministry role, you can learn some of those basics, even in a day-long workshop that doesn't make you a certified professional, but can be incredibly helpful in your work. And that motivational interviewing combines some of those ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy that allows us to identify distortions that we have in our own thinking, as well as that very person, Carl Rogers kind of person-centered approach that calls out the best in who we are. And so that was some of the basis for it. But there were two other things that were important to me. One was writing. I wrote out about my experiences. I was processing my experiences. And I was motivated because I wanted to write about what was happening to me. And that gave me a push towards something that was worth overcoming addiction for. Another thing was prayer and meditation. It pushed me deeper into my own religious tradition. You don't need to be in a religious tradition to overcome. You don't need that as, as something to get better. But for me, that was a part of my path. And one thing that I do want to address that wasn't a part of my recovery story, but is for so many people, is medically assisted treatment. Buprenorphine is one of the most common forms of this. Access to that is incredibly important for those who are struggling. It does help address some of those physical withdrawal symptoms, and it's something that has time and time again been shown to reduce overdose deaths. It has had some stigma around it in the past, but I think that, again, is a bad theology of thinking a substance in and of itself is bad, as opposed to saying it's a disordered relationship with it. And medically-assisted treatment is incredibly important in helping people take those first steps. And so. I know from being in relationship with my mother that that it's improper to talk about overcoming an addiction. It's it's a it's a fact of life that stays with you. But it is possible to talk about having moved from a state of disorder in relationships to a state that is what we might call sobriety. And so let's say that you've moved from your addiction to a state of sobriety. How long did that journey take for you? You talked about these various methods that you were using, including journaling and writing and, and, and some, some support methods is that how, how long did that journey take? As you said, like, so there's a couple ways to end. One was about four months and the other was about four years. 
So I grew up in an evangelical context and had this really bad understanding of conversion, that it was you walk down the aisle and you say one prayer and you sign up and your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and from that day, everything's different. It's always changed. And what that ended up is I did that at least three times a year and would feel great for about two days and have that feeling, and I associate that's my conversion is that feeling that I have when I walk down the aisle when everything's different. But in reality, part of conversion are those gentle nods of the soul that we have, that we slowly take towards the good, that we slowly take towards the beautiful, that we slowly take towards God's love. And I think the same is true with harm reduction, is we don't always need to expect someone to overcome all at once in a dramatic fashion. It might be introducing to that person, what's that next thing that you can do in your life that's going to reduce the harm that this addiction causes and help you rebuild some of those relationships and some of those connections that are going to keep motivating you. And it can be a process that builds on itself instead of thinking that someone needs to go from a heavy dependence and use of alcohol or drugs to complete sobriety, like complete sobriety overnight. That process might take a long time, and that's not an aberration. Failures and setbacks are just a part of life. It's not, it's not an ultimate failure. And whenever we can encourage people to take one more positive step, I think that's a victory. Timothy McMahon King, your book, Addiction Nation, I, I come from a background where, you know, I, I watched my mother struggle with this her entire life. You have taken your own journey, and it's your journey is on every page of this book, but you also open up every page into an informative and really inviting journey for the reader to learn about the vast landscape that leads to this very personal crisis of addiction. I thank you for your honesty, both in your writing, but also in just the way that you've approached the conversation today. I know that my listeners are going to find it very helpful. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Timothy McMahon King. He's a nonprofit professional, a writer, and the owner of Vagabond Consulting. He's worked as a community organizer in Chicago and a chief strategy officer with Sojourners. He's written for various magazines, including Christianity Today, Sojourners, and others. We've been talking today about his recent book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.